The law is holy, righteous, and good. We'll read Romans 7, 7 to 13, but focus on 12 and 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Amen. The argument the apostle undertakes here is to show that sin is the cause of our misery. Sin is the cause of our death. Sin and its consequences are the fault in our Christian life or in our life. Sin and sin alone. Not God and not God's word. Not God and not God's holy law. God cannot be blamed for anything that happens to us. We are to blame because of sin which resides in us. As unbelievers and even as believers, whenever there is anything that is contrary to the will of God and that produces misery, suffering, heartache, it is sin, whether in our life or someone else's life, that produces that in us and in our families, in our culture, in our world, wherever we are. It's sin. Sin is to be blamed in the sinner, not God. That's his fundamental point in verses 7 to 13. We saw last time him arguing in verses 7 to 11 that the commandment's presence is for it to be good, to result in life. But because sin in us rejects the commandment, it produces death. He continues with that train of thought, line of thinking, in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, he says, So then, as though he is summarizing and concluding, he says, So then, so then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here he uses a turn of phrase, the law, and then he says the commandment. It's most likely the case that he is referring to the one and same law. He's not referring to a subset necessarily or something else. He's referring to the word of God or the law of God. He's been using these words interchangeably throughout this um, passage. For example, verse 7, he calls it the law. Verse 8, he calls it the commandment. Verse 8 also, the law. Verse 9, he calls it the law, the commandment. Verse 10, this commandment. Verse 11, the commandment. 
Then he now summarizes, and he's using these two words interchangeably, synonymously, the law, the commandment. That's how he's addressing the issue of where God has manifested his holiness, righteousness, and goodness. One more place is in verse 13. He says, the commandment. So this is in reference to the law of God. There are different ways to describe the law of God. In this passage, the law, the commandment. And what is it? When we think of God's law, should we recoil? Should we have a a response of bitterness and irritation when we think of the law, when we're thinking of God? Many people do. When they hear that word, the law, or the commandment, or the command, they recoil. They walk away. They are disgusted by such a word to describe God, God's communication to us, and God's expectation of us. They don't want to think about God in those ways. Law or commandment. Statutes. They don't want to think of God in terms of ordinances. They don't want to think of God like that. Because when they think of God that way, it restricts and constricts, it puts boundaries on their sin. It confronts their sin. That's why they don't like it. Paul knows that. The apostle knows that. He knows that about human nature. That's the way he was until he was converted. That's the way we all are until we're converted. And then occasionally, the flesh rises up against us, even after our conversion, to fight against the law, the commandment. He understands. That's why he's describing the law now. And he says categorically in verse 10, it's holy, righteous, and good. It's holy in that there is nothing unclean and impure or polluted in it. The flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil wants to think of it as unclean, polluted, impure, but we can't think that way. Whenever we think of the law of God, we have to think of it as holy, completely free from all impurities, all uncleanness. That's the way the law is. It's also righteous, not unrighteous, not wicked. It is not something that is contrary to justice and, and uh, judgment in the world or in the unseen world, the spiritual world. It is righteous. Yes, people are unrighteous. Judges are unrighteous. That happens all the time in our world. But God cannot be accused of being an unrighteous judge. He is a righteous judge with righteous laws that he expects us to obey. He is righteous and further good. The law is also good because God is good. God is good. The Lord is good. And because the Lord is good, remember Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Correct? Do you realize what you're telling me, rich young ruler? God is good, therefore his word is good. The law is good. Not evil. Not evil. When people in unbelief approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but even many parts of the New Testament, when they approach it, they think what they read is evil. 
God is evil. God's prescriptions, God's expectations are evil. But here he says, no, you can't conclude that way. You must conclude that it is good. The law is good because God is good. God is holy, righteous, and good. Therefore, his law is holy, righteous, and good. Everything. We cannot mitigate, we cannot circumvent, we cannot undermine, we cannot contradict anything that's in the law of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil do so every day, many, many times a day. But we have to fight that by faith, believing what is written in this word. To reiterate this point, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. David, the prophet who wrote the Psalms, David, the holy prophet who wrote the Psalms, Psalm 1 and verse 1. How did David, who lived about 1000 BC and who only had the books of Genesis to Joshua and Job? Genesis to Joshua and Job. Those were the only books that were written by the time David lived. Of course, during his lifetime, he writes the Psalms. But in his upbringing, before he was a prophet, Assigned to write scripture, he only had Genesis to Joshua and Job in the chronology of the Bible. That's all he had. How does he look at those books of the Bible? Look at Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Does David look at the law of God as drudgery, as a burden, as a heavy load on his head? No, he doesn't look at it that way. Because he's saying that the righteous man, the redeemed man, He delights in God's law. He meditates on it day and night and produces fruit corresponding to what he believes in that law. And of course, he avoids evil men. He stays away from evildoers. This is the way we should look at it. Also, preceding David was Joshua. Remember, after Moses died, there was Joshua. Joshua only had the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He only had those five books. And in Joshua 1.8, God told Joshua some similar words to what we read here in Psalm 1. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Joshua 1 Verse 8. Joshua was told to do that just on the basis of those five books. Let's continue. Let's continue. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. The first half of the psalm describes God's revelation of himself in the world, in nature, by creation. That's called general revelation. General because 
it's accessible to everyone around the world to know that God exists and what his nature is. In Psalm 19, 7 to 14, however, we have specificity it's called special revelation that's only accessible to those who have the word of God. So to us, we who have access to the word of God, what should our mindset be? What should our heart be as we approach this word? Verses 7 to 14 tell us. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That should be our attitude when we think of the word of God. Job 23. How did Job look at the word of God? Job 23:12. Job 23:12. He declares, he declares, he announces his resolve, what he has done and how he continues to believe. Job 23:12. His resolve, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He has not departed from God's commands. And he has treasured the words out of God's mouth more than his necessary food. More than his necessary food. That's the way we should look at God's word. It should be precious to us. Sweeter than honey, sweeter than our desserts, the word of God. That's the way we should look at it. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah, the prophet, 15, 16. He also declares from his perspective what he thinks of the word of God. If you recall the words of Jeremiah in his prophecy, there are many, many Righteous, holy words that he writes and the words he writes and preaches are distasteful to his hearers. They want to persecute him and even persecute him to death. They want him to keep quiet and go away, right? Consider what Jeremiah thinks of God's words that he has to preach at the threat of his life to his hearers. How does Jeremiah look at it? Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah 
Though God's word brings him affliction and persecution, it makes him wonder sometimes. He still knows, because he's a man of faith, that God's words are eatable words, consumable words, because they are good for him. They are a joy and the delight of my heart. That's the way we should look at it. However, someone might say, that's the Old Testament. That's the way they thought about it in the Old Testament. However, Romans 7 is in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle asserts in the New Testament what perspective we should have of the good, holy, righteous words of the Old Testament. Correct? So the Apostle is teaching us as believers that we should have that perspective. Even Jesus our Lord taught that. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, the book of Matthew, is also in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 17. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus our Lord speaks. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We will not, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. How will our righteousness surpass the scribes and the Pharisees? Only if we have the righteousness of Christ called a foreign righteousness because it's foreign to us, called an alien righteousness because it's alien to us. We don't have it. We don't possess it naturally. We need to obtain it by faith, believing that Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. So we receive it that way. So if we receive it from Christ, what is it that Christ believed better than the scribes and the Pharisees? His view of the law. You see, people think the scribes and the Pharisees, they loved the law. They loved it and they practiced it in minute detail. Relatively speaking, they did. But ultimately speaking, they did not. Why? Why did the scribes and the Pharisees not keep the law? Because they added the traditions of men. And they focused on the traditions of men, all the while speaking out of both sides of their mouth, that they believed in the law, that they believed in Moses, that they follow Moses, they follow God. But on the other side, they are consumed with the traditions of men that undermine the law, that abolish the law, that reject the law. And Jesus says here in verse 17, that 17 and 18, he didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from that law until all is accomplished. And when will that happen? Heaven and earth. Earth passes away. 
at the end of the world, then these will be abolished because there's no more need to curb our sin because we will be perfect, glorified like Christ is. But until heaven and earth pass away, we still need the law and the prophets. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need the law and the prophets. If we believe in Jesus' words and the apostles' words. And when we need them, we should have the right perspective. They are holy, righteous, and good words, good laws, good commandments. Now, verse 13, Romans 7, 13. Therefore, did that which is good become, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. He concludes this section by saying, did that which is good, he's already established that it is good. In verses 7 to 12, he has established that God's law is good. So if it is good, did that law cause my death? What actually, precisely, specifically caused my death? It's not the law, but sin. He says, may it never be, we should never even entertain the thought that God is the cause of our evil. God is the cause of our death and misery. No, God is not the cause of it. Rather, it was sin. Categorically. Rather, it was sin, which is what he's been saying all along. It's sin. Sin, sin. Sin is the cause. And why is it that God wanted us to know? Why is it God is highlighting to us, emphasizing to us, underlining to us that sin is the cause? in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death. Through that which is good. Remember what we said earlier. Sin is rising to the surface. It manifests, manifests itself. It demonstrates it is shown to be sin that's the real cause that causes our death. Through that which is good. And how? Because God announces it. And when God announces what is good, we turn away from it and say, no, that's evil. And then our sin becomes the cause of our death. It rises to the surface. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. We're caught red-handed. Right? We're busted. That's what happens. So this is God's intention all along. And last time... We illustrated with the parent-child relationship. The parent tells the child not to do something. The child hears that and then does it. Who's at fault? Was the parent at fault for issuing the commandment not to do something? No. The child was at fault. And then that child's sinful disobedience rises to the surface and he says no. And then he goes and does it contrary to the command of the parent. Right? So... Who sees it? The child sees it because he can see his hands doing it or his feet doing it or his mouth doing it, right? 
He sees it. The parent sees it. The sibling sees it. The grandparent sees it. Whoever, the friends see it. They all see it. It's manifested. It rises to the surface. And who is to be blamed? The child is, not the parent. God's purpose is to demonstrate beyond any doubt. Because what is God? He is a righteous judge, the judge of heaven, who needs the evidence to be presented in full display in the courtroom, right? It needs to be shown. The evidence needs to be presented. And therefore, that's God's purpose. Then he says, 13, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Once sin rises to the surface, once we see it, we see its action and its consequence. We see its behavior and then what punishment it deserves. Once we see that, it's got to become to us, God's purpose is for it to become to us utterly sinful, completely sinful, something that's very heinous, something that's detestable, something that we want to abhor, something we want to avoid. He's describing this as the Bible sometimes does, like a dog returning to its vomit and a sow or a female pig, after being washed, returns to wallowing in the mire. 2 Peter 2, 20 to 22. It's that way. We have to look at our sin like filth and like vomit. That's the way God wants us to look at our sin. That way. We have a few examples of those in Scripture who have done so. Let's take a journey, a brief journey through the book of Luke to illustrate this point. A brief journey through the book of Luke to see how sin, when it is understood to be utterly sinful, it produces a good result. When it is properly seen, it produces a good result. Luke 7. Luke chapter 7, 7.36. Luke 7.36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman was a great debtor in terms of her sins. She came to the realization of how utterly sinful her sin was. That's why she's weeping and spending expensive uh, or lots of money with expensive perfume to humiliate herself in front of Christ and the Pharisee. Even at the scoffing of the Pharisee, she persists in the Pharisee's house to do what she needs to do and she's manifesting that she knows her sins are utterly sinful. And she doesn't care what people think about it. Our next example in Luke is Luke 15. Luke 15. This is the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11 till the end of the chapter. 11 to 32. Luke 15, we pick it up. We pick it up at verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. See there, when he came to his senses by the Holy Spirit, he acknowledges that he has sinned against heaven and his father, and verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Call me a hireling, but don't call me your son. He's willing to subject himself to that infamy of being disowned by the father. Just treat me like a hired man. Further, we have Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. Luke 18, 9 to 14. The parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Verse 9. And he also told his parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The tax collector, he understood who he was before God. God being holy and righteous and good, he understood that he was unholy, unrighteous, and evil. And he prays that way, seeking the forgiveness of God. That's what should happen when we preach the gospel. That's what we pray happens whenever we preach the gospel. We pray and we preach in such a way to tell people the truth about God and His law and the truth about them and their sin. And our goal should be this very goal to make sin utterly sinful to them. We have to convince them that sin is utterly sinful, utterly detestable, utterly abhorrent to them. Until they come to that realization, they will not repent. They will make a show of it. They will not truly repent until they know that their sin is utterly sinful in the sight of God and deserves His wrath, which means their death, including eternal death. Until that comes to their mind, they won't repent. So let's be faithful in understanding the gospel and in preaching the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.